relax. You can kind of have a fun. You know, people are traveling. You're all kind of exhausted from what you're doing. You can hardly, it's Christmas, and you're not sure you're happy about that. It's all going to work out. All right, let's uh, pray, and let's have a go here. Let's see what the, the book says for the fourth Sunday in Advent. This will be a nice week. We've got a nice full Advent this year, Christmas toward the end. And remember, don't come at 6 o'clock on Saturday the next two weeks. We won't be here for you. Ah, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Luke 1, 46 to 47. Lord Jesus Christ, our light and our salvation, who alone is the one come to save sinners. We thank you for your coming and for your will to perform in us again your saving work. We beg you, rule us by your Holy Spirit, that from this day forward we may wait for no one else and put our trust in nothing, in heaven or in earth, except you and you alone, O Lord. Amen. That's nice. So this is our last, this is our last swing at Leviticus. You cannot make this stuff up. Did you get the Druids? Uh, have, you got the, have you got your Druid? Everybody got a Druid program? Anybody need that? Thing at the top that says Christians 2 Druids zip. Anybody need this? Raise your hand. Because you can't, you can't make this up, okay? <clears throat> now I put in the plug. You know, I try to, I copy things for you and then, anybody else need one? Because it's just, you know, you just, this is fun. Uh, I put in the, have you got the druid bit? You need that. Oh, you got it. That's what he's given you. Uh, American, uh, well, this is the forum letter. It's kind of an interesting, I walk by you? It's like the Three Stooges. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I put in the plug now for the forum letter, which is an interesting thing if you subscribe to it, uh, because it is, uh, it's, the, it's the conservative end of the ELCA, which then often puts it you know, a, bit more, a bit more to the liberal end of us. So they stand at this place where they criticize the Missouri Senate for being too conservative and the ELCA for being too liberal. So it's an interesting take on both ends of the spectrum. Okay, so I sort of hold that, and I give you the website at the top if you want to sign up at it. It's 30 bucks a year. It's interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, you know, when we started, and this is the last go we're going to have at Leviticus, you probably have enough of a taste of this to, I hope, see what I promised, which was this wasn't random acts that happened in Leviticus. This is a way of shaping your life that all points toward Christ. The problem, of course, uh, well, no, let me, then let me say a second thing. What I hope... I was doing was making you a more sophisticated consumer of, uh, of uh, you know, biblical readings and of things you see uh, in the press and things that happen in the church. You know, if, if, if the only thing that happens is that someday down the line you sort of say, now that, that doesn't quite square up with Leviticus. Or if you, if you asked yourself, uh, how, how does that square with Leviticus? you'd be on solid ground. Then we would have done what we, were, what we hoped to do. I just wanted to open this little bit of the Bible that nobody ever looks at, and maybe you could have some joy in that too. Well, then lo and behold, like gift from heaven, this article drops onto my desk. You cannot make this up, okay? Now, as, as prep, I give you, if you've been to church this morning, we sung the psalm. It's fascinating how all things work together. In the psalm, <clears throat> uh, 
we sing, the cantor sings, this is Psalm 24, this, the, the, the second cantor bit, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? You remember the temple is up on the hill. So who can come to the temple? Okay. Who may stand in his holy place? And now all your Leviticus bells should be going off because this whole exercise has been about holiness and how the Lord draws you into his holiness. So who can come to holy space? And who can participate in holy things? That's what the psalmist is asking you. And the people respond, he who has clean hands, see it's a Levitical term. What are, the, what are the categories? One way to describe them is polluted and clean. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, pure and impure, those are Levitical categories. He who does not lift up his soul to an idol. See, there's, there's anti-gods and God. Or swear by what is false. There's true and what's false, okay? So then I give you, you know, everything is connected. I give you this article, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a few bits. You can sort of read along. Everybody got this? This is just, this couldn't be more amazing stuff. <clears throat> Accusations, I'm just starting at the top, against two local priests that they are practicing druids and in violation of their ordination vows are extremely serious facts and merit further inquiries to establish these facts, okay? That's right, the top paragraph. I move you down to the third paragraph, middle of it. A project of the Episcopal Church USA. It seeks to create liturgies honoring women's experience. Now, that would be as wrong as if it said it seeks to create liturgy honoring men's experience or teenage experience or, you know, people who park in the handicapped spot and it's not Wednesday experience, okay? It just, that we don't do that in the church. We are one, okay? So it seeks to create liturgy honor of women's experience. Now, partly you have to understand why this is so nervous, this makes us so nervous is, and makes this guy so nervous is, the Episcopal Church is in fellowship with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which means their bishops consecrate the Lutheran pastors. This is sort of the big thing uh, because Episcopal bishops are an apostolic succession. That means they can, they, they say, you know, whether they can do it actually, they say they can tra trace their ordination all the way back to Jesus. Jesus ordained Peter who ordained, you know, and, and they say they can trace it back. So the ELC has come into this now and so Episcopal bishops are present at the ordination of uh, Lutheran pastors from the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and they share pastors, and they commune together, which means we agree, okay? And see, that's the nervousness, because you have these, you know, nice Lutheran folk who are saying, gosh, there's some of these Episcopal people that make us very nervous. Now, as you all know, there are Lutherans who make us nervous too, but let's just blame somebody else just for this morning, okay? Okay, so <clears throat> look at paganism, heresy, apostasy. So this guy, you know, looks. What he found, among other things, was a liturgy called Women's Eucharist, a celebration of the divine feminine, which appeared to him to be a pagan rite. Okay, so immediately the question about the liturgy is, whose liturgy is it? You remember in Leviticus, the Lord is giving a liturgy. He's giving words and action and motion and place and time. So instead of it being the Lord's liturgy, it becomes they're aiming at a women's liturgy and they hit a pagan liturgy. Isn't this fascinating? Okay, now go to the bottom. This is where it even gets better, where it says raisin cake defiance. 
along with the usual references to Mother God and affirmations of womanhood that you might expect in such a service, there are some things here that are utterly incredible. The service, okay, now think now, your Leviticus grid should come up. Service should mean for you holy time. The holy time begins by gathering around a table, holy space, containing flowers, wine, milk, and honey, and a plate of raisin cakes. The plate is raised, holy ritual, and a woman prays, Mother God, our ancient sisters called you Queen of Heaven and baked these cakes in your honor in defiance of those brothers and husbands who would not see your feminine face. Holy prayer. Then the plate is passed and each woman eats one of the cakes. Holy eating. Now you've seen all of that in Leviticus. Okay, now, now's the time to get nervous. If Queen of Heaven sounds vaguely familiar, you might review Jeremiah 7 and Hosea 3 where the prophets condemn worship of the Queen of Heaven variously known as Astarta, Asherah, or Asheroth. These are, there are variously pillars set up uh, by pagans and worshipped, and at times they got moved into the holy space of Israel, and they get condemned. On the other hand, if you've always wanted to present an offering to a pagan goddess, this is the service for you. There is mention of body and blood in this Eucharist, only it is praise of the strength and beauty of our bodies and for the menstrual blood of womanhood. Now, I go back to something I said to you um, last week, I think, which is things trickle down. The heresy of academics 50 years ago becomes the heresy of colleges 25 years ago becomes our heresy today. 20 years ago, I had a friend at Harvard Divinity School where uh, he told me about a, a liturgy at the chapel there when he was in the MDiv program where <clears throat> the pastor or who, whatever, well, well, I, pastor, I can't think of another way to describe it, you know, suggested that <clears throat> the real body and blood that mattered was women's bodies and menstrual blood, and they had an altar call for everybody to renounce their hetero, heterosexuality and pledge to be homosexual. Okay, now this is 20 years ago at Harvard Divinity School in the normal weekly chapel. Okay, so now, congratulations, it's come to you. I mean, this is it. Uh, which always is the danger of, you know, trying to get any smarter by reading books. Uh, I mean, here it is. This isn't some, just some misguided feminist prattle. It's a clear assault on the Christian faith. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. This worship makes no mention of Christ, blasphemes God's word of judgment against the pagan practices that it seeks to recreate, and invites participants to join in a Eucharist in which there is no cross, no call for repentance, no offer. Remember, God serves you in the divine service. God serves you. The Sabbath, God serves you. Uh, of God's forgiveness and grace given in the atoning sacrifice of, uh, uh, and death of Jesus. Okay, keep going. Three more lines down. It turns out that an almost identical service may be found on a Druid website authored by a certain Glispa. Glispa turns out to be none other than the Reverend, I guess this is Rupa Melnick. Glispa is her Druid name. She also goes by Raven on the Druid sites. But wait, there's more. You keep going. He also bows to both altars. Now suddenly, all your First Corinthian tens bells should be going off. You know, people always sometimes scrunch up their nose in the new members class where I read them the part in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says, you can't worship at the, the, the altar of an idol 
and the worship of the true God. And then they're always, you know, there's always the scrunching up by somebody who says, so are you saying that the you know, ELCA altars are altars of idols or that my good Episcopal friends worship at the altar of an idol? Exhibit A. Okay, every Episcopal person? Certainly not. Every Lutheran person? No. But they have joined themselves, you know, to people who frankly, I mean, this is a Sunday morning service that is just utterly anti-Christ. Okay, and the, he goes on about we're both Druid graduates of a Druid training course. How you get that, I don't know. Uh, you know, you sort of spin over. You could sort of read the rest of this. But the, the most interesting thing is, is that when it says, um, this was removed, this is mid-page on the left, it says, uh, this was removed from the website not because they said that it was heretical, but because to put it on the website violated copyright. So you just sort of say to yourself, well, um, that... Uh, well, it's just an amazing world in which we live. So if you ask me why I don't go to the Holy Supper at uh, an Episcopal altar, I don't do it because the bishop, who's supposed to be in charge of monitoring those altars, at the end says, and this is a great line, I won't allow this situation to turn into a witch hunt of any sort, says the bishop. And you're like, you can't make that up. He didn't really say that. Somebody's making fun of him, right? Because he wouldn't really say... I wouldn't turn this into a witch hunt since what he's supposed to do as the bishop is hunt witches. But I mean, there it is. <clears throat> so, you know, uh, the good news is the two people repented um, and then they sort of have a happy ending. But I would just put to you uh, whether or not such people can still, they certainly can be forgiven, but whether they can remain as pastors is really another question. You know, if you steal money from the congregation, um, we'll forgive you, but you can't be the treasurer. And anymore. And, and if you, you know, there's really a question about whether, as a pastor, if you worship the Antichrist, if you're basically engaged in devil worship, which is what this is, this is worship of nature rather than worship of the Creator. There's really a question of whether or not you can still be in the ministry. I know about forgiveness, and I know anything can be forgiven. That is a separate question. So I just sort of put this out here. This would, be, this would have been a great final exam for you to write. Analyzed Christians to Druid Zero in the spirit of Leviticus. Now, that would have been it. Because you can't make this up. And, and, you know, even when I talk about it now, it seems like you can't make it. I mean, you can, you can hardly believe that this is happening, but. Um, I mean, there it is, black and white. So, you know, if you, if you get anything out of what's left of, of uh, Leviticus, maybe it's a sharper eye for stuff like that. When your friends sort of make fun of you for going to that stodgy old Missouri Senate church, you know, part of your comfort is at least, uh, you know, so far as we know, we're not worshiping with witches, you know, yet. So uh, you'll want to be careful. You just want to be careful going forward. So anyway, that, that in a nutshell, it's interesting that that comes along, that in a nutshell is the point. I mean, that, you, you hopefully have an understanding of what's holy and how to spot what's not. So anything just about that? Yes, please. It's, it's possible. Um, you know, the people participating or the pastors? <clears throat> yeah, that's all right. Um, the question was that this may not have been in English, and so uh, uh, people who are doing this may not have understood what they were doing. 
Um, that's a point well taken in a whole bunch of ways. And it also raises another set of questions. Um, well, one would hope first that that would be true. So you could kind of say, well, that was, that was kind of a, a, a faux pas there. But the other side is, it sort of goes to uh, what happens on Sunday morning. Uh, there's a famous C.S. Lewis quote where he says, the, the liturgy should fit like an old shoe. And, and he goes on to explain that in another place where he says, when I come to church on Sunday morning, I shouldn't have to spend all my time vetting the liturgy or the prayers. I should just simply be able to say what's in front of me and receive that as a gift as opposed to constantly saying, is that true, is that heresy? And that's one of the difficulties with any new worship form. You, you do spend time saying, is this true? So uh, partly my answer would be, it's impossible on Sunday morning for anybody who's faithful to put out anything they don't understand and haven't in advance absolutely marked you know, that it's absolutely positively true, because otherwise you do lead people astray. They do things they don't know what they are doing, right? So Sunday morning isn't the place for experimentation. I think I've told you in the past, Luther, when he, uh, the small catechism, he preached it through three years in a row, and then finally wrote it down, under the notion that you don't ever put anything to, into anybody's hands liturgically or catechetically that hasn't been completely um, sort of marked as solid ground. I understand that there's a theologian's playground. I understand that there's a whole bunch of things that people should be thinking about. I understand that the next thing in theology is something that's very difficult to talk about, whether it is you know, design of the universe or stem cell research. I understand that you can't sort of open the Bible and just sort of say, well, it's right here. You, you have to do some work in the inside. But, but Sunday morning is not like that. Sunday morning is always the solid delivery of God's stuff. So I'd be skeptical at least of that claim, especially since they both claim to have been to Druid training school. Um, and it, is, it was in English, I think, on the website. In fact, you can still, he still gives you a place where you can hit it if you want it. They have it found, uh, they, have it, they have it marked someplace else even though it's been removed. So it's a good question, though, about how we, how we proceed. The other thing is, is that the gospel is notoriously clear and you start with what is uh, you know, unambiguous always in the church, the most unambiguous thing. And the thing that we can all understand is the cross of Christ. I mean, people act sometimes like it's barbaric and they can't understand it, but they do understand it. It happens every day. You explained to me how people went up in the World Trade Center, brought other people out, and then went back up again and got, got blown up. You explained that to me. You understand that. You understand how, you know, one of my favorite stories is about atonement. People don't understand atonement. One of the, now his name slips my mind. But you guys who watched ESPN from its earlier days, you remember that there was kind of a famous story about the death of the first famous ESPN anchor. His name is slipping my mind right now. But the story went something like this. Um, he had two kids, like a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and he walked in the backyard and he saw his three-year-old in the bottom of the pool. And he said to a six-year-old, go call the ambulance. And when the ambulance got there, his three-year-old was on the side of the pool, and he was on the bottom of the pool dead. You remember this? Tom is his first name. I can't remember his name. He's the very first ESPN. Now, you all, if you have kids, you completely understand that. You actually do understand sacrificial death. You do understand it. 
It'll, it'll happen. They'll be, watch the news for the next two weeks. There'll be some report of a Christmas fire, you know, where a mother pitches all her kids out the windows and dies in the flames. You do understand it. This is the simple, most clear there is, thing there is, that one person values somebody else higher than themselves, even um, unto death. So the church starts with that, what's very clear, and then moves forward. Uh, but be careful. The Lord has standards. And all of those standards run under this notion of holiness. Okay? It's a very good question. Thank you very much. Anything else? We haven't had too much time to chat, or maybe we do. We're a little smaller today. Otherwise, um, you know what? I'll just give you, do you have this uh, the sheet that says Leviticus, the conclusion, front and back? <clears throat> you had on the previous, uh, you know, I'll just say a couple of things about holy time. We do, in fact, mark time in the church. You know, we have this time of Advent. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then Christmas. You've got to be kidding. That's God. And then the, the wise men show up. That's God. And then Lent. You've got to be kidding. That's God dead on the cross. And then Easter. That's him. That's actually the God that saves you. And then this long period of Pentecost where you grow into the teachings of the God who saves you. And then you do it all roundabout again. Punctuated by... High feast days that turn the calendar white, Christmas and Easter, Transfiguration, and the feast day of all saints, and rejoicing occasionally in saints who have lived faithfully. You know, the feast day of St. Peter and Paul, uh, feast day of St. Mary. Occasionally we celebrate those when they come, come on Sundays. So our time... The way we, 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 we measure time here over and over again draws you into holy ritual, holy space, holy time, holiness, so that you too can be holy. And that's really the point. The church calendar, you, you had it on, on the back of one of them in this kind of round thing, which I had used this for years, and then when I got here, old Herman Zemke was the guy who'd drawn it, drawn, drawn it for, some, uh, for some class over at River Forest. And... Uh, you know, there it was. But it, it keeps the pastor from, you know, sort of riding a hobby horse about any particular thing he thinks is important. And it gives you a way to measure your life, to reorient and refocus. So, you know, the church calendar, Advent's out. Now on to the next thing. Uh, and, it, and it gives it right down to the text. Somebody asked about that the other day. I don't know, I don't know in 10 years if I've ever preached from a free text. I, I don't, I can't remember a time, but maybe I have. But it wouldn't be often. You know, I'm bound by the text. It's good discipline for your pastors to be bound by the texts that are presented because otherwise, you know, your pastors too can go all wandering off to things that don't quite matter as much as they ought. And my taste should not be the arbiter of your teaching. You know, the church was there long before me and it will be there long after me. And in some ways, the notion of a church calendar protects you. Even as it gives me something to work with, it protects you from me and from pastors who would, you know, sort of grind an axe. It's better for you to just be engaged in the rhythm of the Christian life, to have your Advent every year, and then your Christmas, and then your Easter. You know, and just keep coming back to it, and have your kids. Somebody called me this week from another congregation about how it hadn't been Advent because there were no candles marking time. Uh, it's very interesting uh, that, that, that that was the thing that mattered most. And, and this is the one place you'll notice that we have wax candles. It's one of the few places we have wax candles um, so that they burn. And in the burning, they mark time. It's 
why the Paschal candle marks time. It goes away. Your time grows short. And then at the vigil, when all things are renewed, a new candle. And we mark it, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. Hallow the year ahead. You know, we, we bring that in at midnight at the vigil. And then we, we run it all through again. Holy space and holy time. So it, uh, it all sort of hangs together if you give it a chance to work on you. Um, it, anything about that? Are you still okay? All right, let's keep swinging then. Leviticus, sort of this conclusion. So I give you uh, what is a seminal verse, I hope. This Leviticus 19.2. Does anybody need this? Everybody got this? The one that says Leviticus, the conclusion on the top? Raise your hand. I promise to bring you one. Or send one your way by FedEx. Okay? And you remember that it's, a, it's an odd verb that can be translated in a couple of ways. You are holy, or you will be holy, or you shall be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. So what's the interest of Leviticus? Making you holy. Why do you need to be holy? So that there's nothing between you and the Lord. So what was the point? Try this. Leviticus is the most practical of all the biblical books. Why? Because it engages our fundamental problem. There's just a single problem in life. It is the difference between what's unholy and holy, what's polluted and what's clean, what's corrupted and what's pure, what's sinful and what's gracious, what's death and what's life. There's just a, is a single problem, but it takes all sorts of different forms in all different kinds of life. But it's just a single problem. And so what Leviticus is trying to do is to share holiness with you, to let you experience. Everybody from uh, those who are demon-possessed to those who are ill to those who suffer mentally to those who just struggle with the rigors of everyday life, it's all the same. It's all the same question in a different permutation, a different iteration. It's all the same. It really is. There's Christ and there's Antichrist, and everything can be drawn out of that. This is point two. Holiness means that everything works. Eden is a wonderful place because there's no rub between you and God. That's why heaven becomes such a wonderful place. Eden restored. There's no sharp edges. You know, all is well. And the opposite of that is sin, which is when nothing works. You know, even on your best days, even on the best days of a Christian, uh, things are always tainted. Now, you can still go forward. There's that great little bit by Nagel in the, in the, in the margin comments today where he just sort of says, you don't need to be having a life uh, that, 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 that drags you down unless, unless that's the life you want to have. But the reality is, is that sin puts us at, at odds with the Lord. I've been thinking lately quite a lot about original sin and how original sin is the reason we can't decide whether Rumsfeld should be fired or not. You know, honest presidential election. And I mean honest in the sense that we can't have a presidential election that isn't ad hominem. We can't have one that relies, that speaks to the issues and strategy and then lets people decide. No reason ever finally holds because reason itself is corrupted. No feeling ever finally holds because feeling itself is corrupted. No motives are ever pure. You know, the, partly the reason you, you love your spouse is out of self-interest and your kids too. There's not a one of you nor I who is pure in what we do. Everything is tainted. 
And that, that, that brings sadness into our lives. It, but it does explain a ton. It explains so much about us. Because sin always gives birth to sins, our practical irritations, failings, and damnings as we go through normal life. So, you know, what to do about that? Um, there's a gap between the Lord and us. Leviticus tried to close the gap. The Lord is extremely practical in how he dealt with Israel, and he is extremely practical in how he deals with you. He engages you on every level. He gives you things to see. He gives you things to taste. He gives you things to hear, things to feel. He gives you time to measure. He gives you rituals, like if you put all your sins on this goat and then you send this goat to a place that's inaccessible, then your sins are inaccessible, aren't they? You can't have them back unless you chase them down like an idiot and steal them back from the goat. In the same way with Jesus, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away your sins. The only way your sins can hurt you is if you take them back. If you take them back, you're an idiot. I mean, he wants your sins, and he wants you not to have your sins. Why do you insist on having them? Why do you insist on shame and guilt? Why? It's not the Lord's way. I mean, grace means he takes sins to places that are inaccessible and gives you a fresh start. It's remarkable stuff. It's just, it's just the good gift. So in mercy, God closes the gap. You can describe that in a whole bunch of different ways that all find their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, you know, I give you covenant, because that's the Old Testament way of speaking to many of them. But, of course, Christ is the covenant. The covenants are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Uh, where Christ says of himself, I came to fulfill Moses and the prophets. That's, I've given you the Luke passage. Or what he's really saying is, I came to fulfill everything that's ever been said by Yahweh to his chosen people and to the rest of the world. That's, that's what he means. I'm it. Now, you can believe him or not believe him, but that's his claim. And the glory on the other side of that claim is, point five, some things work now. You can actually have a life that matters. Because of who God is and what he's done, you can actually have a life that has meaning. It will not be perfect. There will be dark days. You know, there will be disruptions in relationships. There will be irritations. There will also be, I, 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 you know, I tell you, the best people I've ever met in the entire world are in the church, and the worst people I've ever met are in the church. It's just the way life is. But the great gift is the Lord continues to give holy space, holy time, holy ways, holy ritual. What he does in word and sacrament is jam holy words into your ears. He puts his holy body and blood into your mouth. You know, he gives you holy space to see. Why is this space holy? Because he puts himself here. First Kings 8 and 9, wherever my name is put, I'll be there and make it holy. He hallows the water by which we baptize. There'll be a baptism Christmas Eve. That should be interesting. Never had that before, but that'll be a fun thing. And those things, you have to remember, are unshakable because Jesus is doing them. If Jesus is doing it, then it's sure to be done. Which is why you can, you know, sort of love your kids even when they're, you know, kids. Because, uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly screw up the courage to love them yourself. Uh, but the Lord loves them. He still loves them, and he bids you to love them. So you love them the way the Lord has given you to love them.
Okay? And then someday, this is point six, when you die, you get Eden back, which will be a very nice thing. And I know that um, you know, each year I get from a church roundabout, they give me a, an invitation. They have a service uh, called a Blue Christmas. I think there are in Elvis impersonators there, I'm not sure. Uh, but they do, in fact, uh, you know, they recognize, it's a noble effort, they recognize that you suffer particularly around the holidays because of things that have happened, children that are estranged, marriages that have broken, people who've died. This is terribly difficult. And for some years, uh, you know, after deaths, for example, it's a terribly difficult time. I haven't ever heavily advertised it because I haven't ever been given the confidence that they'll get all the way to the gospel. I mean, what you comfort yourself in, if you've had a death this past year, in your family, what you comfort yourself with is that the person who's died in Christ will have a Christmas unlike any other. This is really a remarkable thing. You know, to be in heaven for your first Christmas where all is right is really a fantastic thing. And it may be great sadness as you have an empty plate at the table, but for that person, it really is a remarkable thing. And you can rejoice in that. And, and someday in your own death, please die well. Seven. You know, until then, um, there's possibility for us. And that's throughout Leviticus. I mean, those people are moving, they're grasping, they're feeling, they're rejoicing, they're living, occasionally they're dying, occasionally the earth opens and eats some of them. Occasionally holy fire comes down when people step too far outside the boundaries of what the Lord can tolerate. But the joy of Leviticus is that there is a prescribed normal life within which you can enjoy the best that life has to offer. And of course, that's the church as well, if you, if you and I will just let that happen. We, we so much in the church, uh, you know, I, I well, I, yeah, I want to say seven things at once about this. We so much in the church can have the life that Christ means for us to have if we will only respect the life that Christ has given us. If we could listen and obey. If we could put ourselves at point number two rather than point number one. If we could welcome boundaries and authority. If we could understand that this is most important and what's outside this is always of secondary importance. If we could understand that that is true whether we feel it or think it or not because both our thinking and our feeling are corrupted and yet if we could understand that thinking and feeling are redeemed and so all of life can be brought back into joy if we will only have it. If we will only have it. That would be the church that I would want to be in. It should be the church that you want to be in as well. All of that is here. So, you know, baseline stuff. Seven, the Lord is for us and not against us. And the gospel is always more. There's always more good here. It's always on the way. It is your privilege to be part of it. And you should care well for it. And this is probably my last big Leviticus stand, which is the, the line here that says, everything matters, so everything teaches. Uh, you, you know, you get the prize for the best question of the day, which is um, partly uh, well, one of the things we have to remember is everything we do here teaches. 
You know, now there are obvious things like the stained glass. Um, the young Waterman boys came back from St. Louis this morning. It was fascinating to see. You know, they moved down, and it was, it was fascinating. So I said, how's your new church? And Jacob says, he's, the first thing he says is, well, the stained glass isn't as nice. And I thought, you know, boom. You know, whoever paid for the stained glass in this, you know, whoever paid for the stained glass in this sanctuary made a convert. Okay? Isn't that fascinating that a fifth grade kid says, the first time, how's your new church? The stained glass is in that. What does that tell you about him? It tells you that, you know, what he learned of this place, he learned, you know, visually. Of all the things we said to him, maybe nothing mattered more than seeing the big Jesus right back there or walking out and seeing the Lord's finger, you know, coming down making heaven and earth. So, you know, that's a, that's a great joy. Uh, so everything we do, the way we speak to each other, the way we conduct a voters meeting, the way we provide for our kids, the way we paint, fix, move. You know, partly I, I gave you this as, as, as a bit of a primer, you know, partly what I was sort of going at is I'm trying to, over the past two years in my Bible study, give you equipment for going forward if in fact we build a new church or do something else. You know, last year it was all about doing your best, where best is defined, Philippians 1, you know, 8, 9, 10, where best is defined as whatever lies within the boundaries of agape, a thorough obedience, and a deep spiritual insight or maturity. You can do whatever you want inside those boundaries, and it will deliver what's best. And that's not cookie-cutter best. That's best in all the ways that, that the Lord's people sort of bubble up with the latest best idea, okay? But in doing all of that from last year, what you have to remember is sort of this holy space, holy time, holy ritual, holy teaching, holy everything, boundary as well. That you can never do anything in the church halfway. If you do, you're just a damn sinner. Because the church is always meant to be the best possible thing. You know, if you haven't done your best in the church, there's no place you do your best. Nothing else matters. So you should try to remember, and this is part of Leviticus, everything matters on Sunday morning, from the way people move to whether or not the acolytes have polished their shoes, to the temperature of the water in the font, whether we're going to make the babies cry with ice-cold water. Perhaps we should. Okay? I mean, everything matters. And, and you need to understand this, not in the sense that, not in the normal Wheaton sense of, I've got to have more bedrooms in my house than yours. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing your best, not being the best. I'm talking about whatever resources you've got. I mean, if you're Bedouin, you know, in the desert, in the Sinai, you know, what you bring, whichever, which, whichever one of your bulls wears tag number one, that's the one that belongs to the Lord. It doesn't mean that there's not a better bull somewhere in the Middle Eastern region. It means that that's the best thing you've got. And when you do that, when you always bring your best, then it teaches. It teaches the next generation. It disciplines yourself. It, you, you teach yourself in that. You know, this, all this stuff fits together. It really does all work together under the rubric of holiness. It's, it's what you're meant to do. So, uh, you know, last thing. I give you this uh, Leviticus 19. I think this is terribly important for you. You know, you are holy. No matter what you've done or haven't done, you are holy. That's a great gospel gift. Leviticus 19.2 can be read as great gospel. You are holy. When the Lord looks at you, he sees Christ. 
when he looks at you, he sees your baptism. When he looks at you, he sees that you bear the body and blood that once hung on the cross. You are holy. Fact of the matter. That's his judgment on you. Despite where you've been, what you've done, or if you've been a slouch up to now. You're holy. <clears throat> but he also is very careful to say, in the future you shall be holy. Which means, now you can take that for what it is. You can either take that as a threat or a promise. You can take it as, you know what, the body and blood will be on the altar every week to continuously hallow you. And you can rejoice in that, or you can sort of come, you know, once every six months and, you know, make your salvation and your spiritual life sketchy. And someday, you know, you will be holy. It'll all be put back together as the people of God. But until then, what you need to understand is this is the only thing that really matters. This is the most important thing. And when the church has that, the church flourishes. And when the church doesn't have that, you know, it's old, boring, dog-eared, and dull. And frankly, it's up to you. That's the weirdest thing about Christmas, <coughs> is that the Lord would put himself into your hands. If the Lord would become a child and let you hold him, that Jesus starves to death if Mary doesn't feed him. And then what happens? On the other hand, if the wise men show up and bring gifts, great gifts, to bear him through all the way to his burial, gold and incense and myrrh, the stuff you use to bury people of noble stature, then life is good and it carries on. So anyway, maybe um, Leviticus isn't such a closed thing for you, and maybe you can at least get a template going so when you, uh, you know, the next time, it won't be the Druids next time, it'll, it'll be a different surprise, uh, but maybe next time you'll be ready to go. Uh, anything else? We're probably up on the time. All right, take a couple of weeks off. I know people are already beginning to travel. So uh, we'll come back. <clears throat> nothing next week and no Sunday school. Nothing the following week and no Sunday school. So the 26th and the 2nd, no Bible study or Sunday school. We have not only many of you gone, many students gone, and also many teachers gone. So it's just difficult to staff. Uh, but on the 9th, then, a voters meeting. And if you're a member here, you've got to vote. Uh, you should come. There's nothing too startling coming up. There'll be things like, you know, kind of a report from the church, a report from the school, a report from the capital campaign, a report from the real estate guys. There is one constitutional amendment to the synod's constitution. We need to vote on that, and we, it's best if we do that as a congregation. And I'll try to get you some data about that. I'm sure in this congregation there'll be people on both sides of the issue. We will vote, and then we will see what happens. Okay? Yes, please. Oh, is Marcus ready to go? Benjamin, I'm sorry, Benjamin. Okay, so young Stellwagen has agreed to tell us about Russia. Thank you very much. So on the 2nd, Ben Stellwagen will be here. Uh, do come. Are we going to go here or are we going to go downstairs and have a cup of coffee? What do you think? We'll probably, we could, you know. <clears throat> Isn't Ben bringing Starbucks? Is Ben bringing Starbucks? <clears throat> I take that as a yes. I tell you what. Um, you know what, let's, uh, let's we'll, we'll, you, you come around, but if we can get Ben to not only bring slides, but Starbucks, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll start downstairs. We can get about 100 down there before the firemen show up and, and, and take us away in handcuffs. And then, uh, you know, if we get more than 100, then we'll, then we'll move upstairs and you'll have to mark your cups with those little holiday marker things, okay? But come the second, because Mar uh, Marcus, 
Well, I, this is true for Marcus, too, but Ben got into all kinds of trouble then. My, the best fun I had was when, this is right in the middle of Leviticus, this is no lie, I get an email from a guy, uh, from Azazel, right? You remember what that was in Leviticus? It came the week we were talking about this. Do you remember what that was? That was the name of the demon in the never reaches that the scapegoat was sent to. I get this email in my box. And who is it? Who's it from? It's from Ben. From Russia, because that's the guy who would let him borrow his email. Like, this is too weird. So you'll, you need to be explaining that. And uh, other things, too, with our Russian friends. Okay? So, yeah, on the second. Thank you very much. That just came up this week. All right, let's pray. Have a great Christmas. We'll be here all week. We hope you will, too. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks.